Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, to chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses uh, 9 through 12. And that's Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work, and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Father, we do pray now that you would bless the preaching of your word, that it would be used by you to build up your saints in faith, that we all might become imitators of those who through endurance and through faith have inherited the promises. Lord, may it be that you would grow us in this way and that we would truly have our eyes opened to the wonder of the grace that you have shown to us, that we would be assured of this grace that you've given to us, and that we would respond with heartfelt worship to your name. For we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the key doctrines that was debated around the time of the Reformation was that of assurance. Uh, is it possible for a Christian to be assured of his salvation? And one of the things that is um, the result of all of those debates has become very, very clear that the only system of doctrine, the only system of doctrine that can have a robust view of assurance is the Reformed faith. Uh, without, the re without Reformed theology, there can ultimately be no assurance uh, of salvation. Um, such that assurance of salvation, the possibility of it, how you get there, is a great test for um, the orthodoxy of uh, of a, uh, a system of doctrine with regard to uh, salvation. Because the scriptures do clearly teach, as we will see uh, in this particular text, that assurance is possible and that it is a duty for the Christian to pursue. And so, for instance, Arminians, who claim that a person can lose their salvation, can it never be assured of anything except for their current state. They could, an Armenian could say, well, I've been forgiven of my sins insofar as I believe, but I do not know if, I, if I'm going to continue to believe, and if I don't continue to believe, I will not be saved in the end. And therefore, for the Arminian, there is no way for him to know what will happen to him in the future. And this leads to great anxiety. It leads to great anxiety in people. The, you know, the Arminian view of salvation desperately attempts to retain uh, some kind of sovereignty for man. But in so doing, the Arminian robs the Christian of any ability to be assured about his own salvation. So as he tries to maintain 
a false sense of dignity for man that, that the scriptures don't give in the sense of sovereignty. Uh, he actually removes uh, part of the, the, the greatest sense of assurance, the, the greatest blessing of assurance. The Arminian cannot ever be assured of his salvation. The Arminian doctrine leads to people constantly wondering, you know, did I say this prayer right? Was it sincere enough? Uh, it, will I be able to stand on the day of difficulty? I have seen others that appeared to really believe and they fell away. The same thing could happen to me. And so you're left with a situation where there can be no assurance. Catholics uh, also deny the ability to gain assurance uh, by any kind of normal means. Uh, in the Catholic view, assurance leads to presumption 100% of the time. So in that sense, the, the Catholics will actually say that assurance is in some sense uh, not even a desirable thing. It's not even something that a Christian should pursue as it will only lead to uh, you presuming upon God's grace and therefore not acting in a way that is godly. It's always the, the, the challenge that comes against the reformers is that the reform doctrine of assurance will lead people to uh, basically say, I can just do whatever I want and uh, there will be no consequences. Now, against both of these positions, the Arminian view and the Catholic view, there is the, ref the Reform view, which teaches that assurance is both possible and necessary to pursue. It is a duty for the Christian to pursue assurance, and it is possible to attain it. It is possible for a Christian to be assured of his salvation, and it is a duty for the Christian, every Christian, to pursue it. Now, is the doctrine of assurance important? And if so, why is it important? There are many ways that we could answer this. Uh, one, even just very basically from uh, in responding to the Arminian position, it's better not to live a life full of anxiety uh, with regard to your spiritual state. Um, and surely if God has saved you from your sins, he does not want you to be saved into a position where you are always ang anxious about uh, what's going to happen to you. Surely this is not consistent with the peace that surpasses understanding that's been promised to you in the gospel. It's not consistent with the idea that you have in fact found peace with God. The Arminian and, and the Catholic is always wondering, have I actually found peace with God? And will that peace be maintained all the way into eternity? So just for that reason, we'd say that assurance is in fact important. But there is a, another reason why assurance is important, and it's perhaps even more significant than the reason of a person's individual anxiety. And that is that assurance of salvation is necessary for true godly worship of God. It's not to say that you can't worship God at all if you don't have, if you don't have real assurance. But the point is, is that if, if you were to think through What's the main thing that God deserves praise for? The answer is salvation, the salvation of the soul. If a person can never come to a sure understanding that they have received salvation, that means a person will never in their lives praise God for the salvation of their own soul. And therefore, what we would say is that the, the first, the primary, the bottom reason, the foundational reason why it is important that every Christian be diligent in pursuing true assurance is because you must know what you have been saved from so that you can praise God for it. It is related ultimately to the glory of God. And secondly, uh, there, are, there is an important relationship between uh, the doctrines of assurance and the doctrines of justification and uh, particularly adoption. It's important for you to know that the declaration of righteousness that God gives to you when you believe that that will last. And even further, 
that when God adopts you as his child, that he is not immediately going to just turn around and deny you. That the adoption that you have from God is something that you can set your hope and your confidence on. That you can be assured of God's love because of an act that he has given to you. you uh, I'm sure all of you know we, we recently have completed the, the adoption of Asher. And you think about the way we adopted him. We, we did not adopt him upon condition of certain behavior after we adopt him. And we're not threatening him that if he does not behave in a certain way, we will remove his status as being a son. And uh, we are say, and you know, it's not to say that we don't deal with behavior. We do deal with behavior, but we always deal with it as a son. He, we, we say that Asher is now our son. And as a son, we deal with his behavior. And such is the same with regard to the doctrine of adoption. This is really what makes uh, really all of the views that will deny the, the possibility of assurance, particularly the Roman Catholic view, that um, you know, adoption, justification, uh, all these things are things that can be lost. Uh, the problem is, is that it sets up the situation where, where God essentially says, uh, I will adopt you, but I will never let you really know that you are my son until you die. And you can strive for it all your life in the church. And at the end, you can do your best to hope that you've done enough. And if you've done enough, then I will accept you. Uh, such an adoption is significantly less loving than what any human adoption uh, 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 is an example of in this life. Uh, adoption is, the, is a gracious act of God whereby he receives us into his family. And he then deals with us as sons to conform us to the image of his son. It is not given upon condition of future uh, obedience or disobedience. It is simply given. And the point is with assurance is it is, is important for the Christian to be able to know that this gift has in fact been given. And that it's been given in a way so that you can confidently call upon God as your father. And even then as you think about um, living a godly life, that it's actually important that you be able to, 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 to do this. How is it that you are going to be able to stand firm against all of your, uh, against all the, the, the temptations of the devil? It's by calling upon God as your father and pleading with him to help you. It is by recognizing that you have been adopted into his family and, and coming to him and coming to the throne of grace with boldness even, not hesitantly, but with boldness so that then in your temptation, you are able to stand because God is the one who will supply all of your needs and all of your strength. This is, these are just some of the reasons why it is important to understand that the assurance of salvation is significant. Um, it is a mark of, of a serious error if a system of doctrine cannot ever lead to uh, one being confident that God has in fact saved a particular person. The gospel is this, that for those who believe on the name of God, of Christ, that they have, become, that they have been given the right to become the children of God who are born not of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is the reality of, of all people who have been saved from their sins. And the point is that God deserves praise for this act in your life. God deserves praise for this act in your life. And therefore, you need to be assured of it so that you can give him the praise that is truly due to his name. Now, here in this particular text in verses 9 through 12, 
the author is really getting at uh, two different elements of assurance. Uh, first, he speaks of the confidence that he has in the Hebrews. He, he does believe that they are uh, Christians. And, and interestingly here, uh, there is even some measure of assurance that a person can have about the salvation of another. And that's what's happening here. The author is relatively assured that the, the people he's speaking to, the congregation he's speaking to, that they are in fact Christians. And then secondly, the other thing that he does is he speaks about the duty that they have to go on to full assurance. So there is the assurance that he has, which tells us something about how we can find assurance ourselves. And then secondly, impresses upon them the duty of pursuing that assurance so that they would always, that they would always in fact have it. Now, this patch is very significant in light of its context. You remember that last week we looked at a very, very difficult warning that's given in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. This is immediately following that. So the idea in terms of the context is this. Uh, the author is saying that you know, if you were in a situation where you've been given all these blessings from the Spirit, and then you turn away and you re-crucify Christ, you attempt to re-crucify Him, then you will never be restored. But now he's saying, this is not actually what I think about you. I actually believe that there are better things that are happening for you. That there is a warning, a warning that he's giving. If you turn away, this is what will happen. But I really do have confidence that you are of the kind that will not turn away, but that you will in fact persevere in the faith. And so it's important for us to think through, you know, as you think through all these warnings, how is it that you can, in the midst of warnings that are as strong as those that come uh, in the first part of Hebrews 6, how is it that you can still yet be assured that salvation really is yours? Because these two things, again, are juxtaposed. They're put right next to each other. Uh, the warning is beneficial to you as a believer. But also, there is another benefit that is important, and that is that you can be, that you be assured that you are, in fact, saved, if, in fact, uh, you are. And therefore, brothers and sisters, it is important in light of all the warnings that you do everything you can to make sure that your calling and election is, is sure. It is good for your soul to pursue assurance. It is good for your soul to pursue assurance. Now, we'll look at this passage under two headings. As again, I mentioned that there are two things that the author is trying to do here. We'll look at the assurance of salvation in others, uh, how far this can be known, and particularly what the grounds of it, uh, of it are, because this, this uh, teaches us how we can be assured of our own salvation. So how is it that you can be assured of your salvation, verses 9 to 10, and then verse 11 and 12, again, the duty of pursuing the assurance of salvation, uh, that it is, in fact, a duty for every Christian to pursue uh, the assurance of salvation. Now, you'll notice that in verse 9, that the author begins by, uh, again, reassuring the congregation he's speaking to. So he says in verse 9, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So the though we speak in this manner is referring to the warning that had just been given in verses 1 through 8. So the idea is, is that the author is saying, I know that what I've said is very hard. And I know, and I'm, I'm not trying to say that the warning is uh, irrelevant. I know it was very difficult. And it is a very real warning I'm giving to you. And yet, when I look at your life, I am convinced that you are one who will not fall into this. You are one who will not fall away. 
So that's what the author is saying in verse 9. So the warning is necessary, but he does not think that they will be of the kind that will not heed the warning. Remember, it's a part of faith. It's something we've been talking about uh, over and over again, particularly in Matthew chapters 11 through 12. It is a part of faith to tremble at the threats of God. He believes that when he gives this warning, that they will respond in faith, that they will uh, respond with even greater love uh, towards God. Now, this is an important, important thing to think through as you think about uh, the balance that is always needed, particularly in preaching and in, the, in, in applying the Word of God. There is a necessary function to all warnings given in the Scripture. A um, number of things that it does, you know, they're meant to terrify the hypocrite, to, to wake him up, to wake up uh, particularly the Christian who is neglecting the duties of the Christian life. The point of the warnings is to say, you know, if you continue down this path, it's going to lead to, to terrible things for you. Uh, but at the same time, the warnings are never meant to overwhelm or discourage the struggling Christian. So there is this balance that always needs to be struck and is struck perfectly in the Word of God. That the warnings are given such that the person who believes himself to be a Christian and is not can be shown his real state before God. While at the same time, Christ will not, even in the, the difficult things that are said in his word, Christ does not quench the faintly burning wick, and he does not break the bruised reed. He is gentle with his people. And so here and now, this is an example of the pastoral gentleness of the author to the Hebrews. After saying these very hard things, he comes around and gently encourages them and exhorts them to greater faithfulness. The warning is meant to, to wake them up. There is a a good, a, a good benefit that the author is seeking as he warns the Hebrews. They, they really do need to heed the warning. They, they need to understand that the warning uh, is, is real, and it's meant to stir them up to greater faithfulness. It's not meant to discourage them, uh, and, yet, uh, and yet it is not meant to overwhelm them. It's not meant to overwhelm them. Those are the, the two things that are always balanced in the Scriptures. Now, the reason is given in verse 10, and this is very important. So verse 9, the author is asserting, I have confidence in you that you will heed this warning. Verse 10 shows why the author has confidence. Now this is very, very significant because if you want to know, you know, how is it that a person can be assured of their salvation? Well, the author is about to tell you in verse 10 how he is assured of the salvation of the Hebrews that he's writing to. So how is it then? How is it then that you can be assured of your own salvation? Or how is it that you can, what, what kind of criteria would you use to say, I am assured of this other person's salvation? There are, there are, there are things that this person has done that show me that these is, this is the fruit of real faith. The answer that's given in verse 10 is that the Hebrews that the author is addressing have shown great love for the name of God. But notice, if you were to say, you know, they just love God. That's a little bit abstract. It's not, it's not very concrete. A lot of people can say they love God. How can that be proved? Notice further that the Hebrews that the author is addressing have shown their love for God in the ministering to the saints, in their love for other Christians, in the way in which they care for God's people. So the train of thought is this. I am assured of better things for you because you love God. I can see that you love God because you minister to the saints. I've seen the way that you really do care for God's people. And because of that, that gives me confidence that you really love God. If you really love God, then you really do believe in his name. 
And if you really do believe in his name, you really are Christians and you have a right to all of the promises. That is the train of thought that is leading to the author to say, I can be assured that you, in fact, uh, are those uh, who are real Christians. He, he believes. He has, he has some level of assurance, not perfect assurance. Uh, we can only be perfectly assured of our own state, not being a, a knower of other people's hearts, but we can be relatively assured uh, of, of even the faith of others. Now, this is all to say that this is um, very much related to uh, James, James chapter 2. Remember the very famous text, faith without works is dead. The idea is that no works of love towards the saints means that, there, that a person's confession of faith is not true. There is a kind of faith that always produces good works. The main kind of good work that the author of the Hebrews is emphasizing here is the good work of loving other Christians. So if you see that good work in the context of someone who is professing to believe in Christ, then that is good evidence that their confession of faith is in fact genuine, that the kind of faith that they have is the kind of faith that the Bible describes as saving faith. Uh, that, is, that is the way uh, that the logic works, and therefore you can be relatively assured of another person's salvation. And in your own life, as you think about the way in which you love God and the way in which that, is, that expresses itself in genuine love and concern for the saints, this is the thing that ought to give you assurance with regard to your own spiritual state. Uh, do I truly love the people of God? Now, a few things with regard to this. Why is it? Why is it that the, that love for God expressed by the service of the saints, why is that the main thing that the author says? Why is that the, the main fruit that he looks for? If I were to be assured of your salvation, to have confidence that, you, that your confession of faith really is real, um, why is it that he says, the main thing is, I see your service to other Christians? There's a number of reasons for this, um, but one of the things that we can say with regard to uh, other places in the New Testament is, uh, remember that God himself is invisible. He cannot directly be served by you in the sense that he needs nothing from you. As the psalmist says, if God needed anything, he would not ask you. He would not come to you. God does not need anything from you, uh, and he cannot be served by you. He cannot be seen by you in that sense. And so, if you were to ask, what's the most tangible way, hands-on thing that I can do to show love for God? The answer that's given very often in the scriptures is you can love the people who are called by his name. You can love the people who are called by his name. If you do not love the people who are called by the name of God, this is evidence that you do not actually love God. That's what the scriptures teach. So you think of what John says in 1 John 4.20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Now, brother there, particularly, is another Christian. Not just, not just any person, but another Christian. Uh, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? That's, that's, that's the point. There must be true love for other Christians. Now, why is it that there is a relationship between loving, saints, loving the saints and loving God? Well, part of what loving God means is that you're going to love the things that God loves and you're going to hate the things that God hates. Now think about this with regard to other Christians then. God has shown his love for every Christian that you come into contact with so much that he was willing to send his son to die for that person. If you are going to love the things that God loves, love those whom God has loved, then surely at the very top of the list must be everyone who truly calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone 
whom, who you come into contact with, who is a Christian, is loved by God to such an extent that he was willing to die for that person. You, you think of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. This is the reason why the sin of the Corinthians was so, was so bad with regard to the way they were treating their brothers with regard to the meat that was sacrificed to the idols. He doesn't even first deal with the actual question of whether or not they should eat the meat. He deals with first the way that they treat one another because he says, you know, as you're talking about this and asserting this or that thing, you are forgetting that when you talk to a person who is a Christian, you are talking to one for whom Christ died. And therefore, by your knowledge, even if you're right, you are destroying the one whom Christ has loved so much that he gave his life for him. And therefore, sinning against that person, you actually sin against Christ because that person is called by the name of Christ. And this, this gets even further to uh, another principle that is found in, in, in the New Testament with regard to the reason why this is so significant. And this is to say that Christ counts whatever is done to another Christian as done to him. Now think about this. You've never seen Christ with your eyes. You've never seen him. And yet, on the last day, Christ will say, whatever you have done for another Christian, I count that as being done to me. If you curse another Christian, Christ will one day ask you why you cursed him. That is going to be a question that comes to you on the last day. And the response may be from you, Lord, when did I ever see you that I would even curse you? And the answer will be given to you, whatever you did to the least of these brothers of mine, you did to me. That's what Christ says in Matthew chapter uh, 25. It's important to, to keep this in mind. Very often Matthew 25 is misinterpreted to say that whatever you do to the least of these brothers of mine in the sense of just the poor, uh, you've done to me. It's not what the text is speaking about. The, the, the unbelieving poor are not the brothers of Christ. Uh, the brothers of Christ are Christians. Uh, the, the point is that a Christian has the name of Christ put upon him. And therefore, Christ will say, whatever you do to a Christian, is in fact done to me. This is why uh, in Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, uh, Christ says this very thing to Paul. Saul, Saul, why is it that you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? He says, Lord, Lord, who are you that I persecute you? The idea is he didn't even know that he was persecuting Christ. How was Paul persecuting Christ? He was persecuting Christ in that he was trying to destroy the church. And in trying to destroy the church, he was fighting against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because of this principle, whatever, whatever is done to another Christian is counted as having been done for God. Which means that as we come back around to this particular text, the best way to show love to God's name is in the service of the saints. If, if, if you want to know practically what can I do to show people that I truly do love God, it is loving those who have God's name put upon them. It is loving those whom God... God's name is put upon them. Uh, this is the one thing that will truly show if you receive a person in the name of Christ simply because they come to you in the name of Christ, nothing else, even if there are very, very many other reasons to, to turn away from that person and to not uh, love them or treat them kindly or whatever, but simply because they come to you in the name of Christ, for that reason, I will receive you. I will love you. I will care for you. I will serve you. Uh, that is the thing that shows that you truly do uh, love the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Now, Again, just to emphasize, this is different than general kindness to all people. We do need to be kind to other people, uh, but this is not really a criteria of faith that are, that's given in the, in the New Testament. Um, all kinds of unbelievers are kind to all kinds of other unbelievers. In fact, Christ even says this, you know, uh, if you just love those who love you, it doesn't, it doesn't give you anything because everybody does that. Everybody is kind. It's not a criteria of faith. 
to say that, you know, those who treat me well, I also treat them well. Those who I'm friends with, I also, you know, we, we have this mutual understanding and we're friends uh, with them. Over and over again in the New Testament, the great thing that, that shows that a person really is a Christian is that they have moved uh, from hating Christ and by extension Christians having no particular special affection or attachment to other Christians to loving them because of the common hope, the common faith, the common baptism, the common Lord, uh, the, the, the common God over all, who is over all and in all, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, these are the things that you have in common with every other person who calls upon the name of Christ. Or to, to put it even another way, you remember that um, in Genesis 3.15, where there is the, the first gospel promise that the, in the context one of the things that is stated is that there will be enmity between the two seeds. There's enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. What the author is saying here is that the great evidence that you have passed from death to life is that that enmity that's naturally implanted between the seed of the, of the serpent and the seed of the woman, that would be Christians and non-Christians, that has been removed and that love has been put in its place because now you are not a, a member of the seed of the serpents who have natural enmity against the seed of the woman, but you are a part of the seed of the woman, and you have natural love to everyone else who is a part of the seed of the woman. Um, this was something that was stated at the very beginning. There will always be enmity between the two seeds, which means the enmity is something that proves that a person is not a Christian, and it is love for other Christians that proves that a person is a real Christian. It is love for God's name shown in the assurance, uh, love for God's name shown in the ministry given to the saints. And this is the way that you can be assured, even to some extent, of another person's salvation. There's a couple places, other places in the, in the New Testament where similar statements are made. Uh, there, to the extent that a person demonstrates true love to God in the service of God's people, uh, you can be assured that they are, in fact, real Christians. Now, we, we can't know other people's hearts perfectly. There's always a chance we could be deceived. Um, but there is a relative assurance that we can have with regard to others. And, and more importantly, with regard to yourself, you can have true, real assurance that you are, in fact, a real Christian. And that is the thing that can, in fact, give you peace. You can be at peace. It is possible for a Christian to come to the point where he can be truly at peace with his spiritual state and know that he really does belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to ask, what is it that would show me in my life that my faith is real? The answer is, though I sin often, I really do love God's people because they are God's people and I really do seek to serve them. If that is you, that is good evidence that you are in fact uh, a real Christian. And if this is the case, brothers and sisters, think on it. Think on, on the, the assurance you can have with regard to your salvation. You know, in 1 John 1, John says that God's justice, not his grace, his justice demands that for all those who confess their sins, God will, 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 for, will, will forgive them. God will forgive you in accordance with his justice. Now, how could that be? It can be because it is based on the work of Christ. You are, if you are covered by the blood of Christ, God's justice demands that you be forgiven. And therefore, if you really are a Christian, think, about, think of this. If you really do believe from the heart, and you can have this real assurance, if you have a real assurance that comes from the Scriptures, uh, think of the peace that you can have with God. Of course, His mercy and grace is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, uh, something that can give you comfort. But even God's justice 
will give you comfort on the most difficult of all days, give you, give you, uh, giving you peace uh, with regard to your own spiritual state. And so this is what the author says with regard to assurance. Um, now notice in verses 11 and 12, he says, you know, in light of this, um, the Hebrews that he's speaking to need to be very diligent to pursue this assurance, which makes sense. You know, if, if this is as uh, great a thing as it is, um, then of course it needs to be something that is in fact pursued. Uh, and so the, the author says, you know, in verse 11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Be diligent to pursue full assurance. It is possible to be a real Christian and have no real assurance. That's a possible thing. Um, but it is also possible to be a real Christian and to be assured. And the point that the author of the Hebrews is making is you must be diligent in pursuing this very real assurance. Uh, in fact, to go even further, uh, assurance is a duty. And if you do not care about your assurance, this is a, is a sign of very great spiritual weakness. If it does not bother you that you do not have assurance if you don't, or if you're wondering whether or not the assurance you think you have is actually biblical, and it, it's not, not something important enough to you to, you know, to pursue to know whether or not the assurance you have is actually founded in the scriptures. Uh, if, if that's something that you know, is not a concern to you, then that is a sign of great uh, spiritual weakness. Um, think about it, to be uncertain about whether or not you have actually obtained salvation from your sins uh, really shows, can't, can't really be anything else but other, than, other than to show that you have a uh, uh, lack of concern for the good of your own soul and the glory of God. It is a duty that must be, uh, uh, that must be pursued. Now, why is it that the author calls assurance here the assurance of hope? Notice that's the language he uses in verse 11. The same diligence to the assurance of hope until the end. Why the language of hope? Uh, the reason is because hope is connected with things to come. Remember what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. We do not hope for what we have. Who hopes for what he's seen? Uh, if, we hope for, if, we, if we long for what we do not yet have, we, we have, we have real hope. The idea is that hope is always uh, future-oriented. The idea then of assurance here is that assurance is related to uh, assurance concerning the things that you will receive on the last day. Can you be assured that on the last day you will receive blessing from God? Is there an assurance of hope that you have moving forward uh, into the future? This is the thing that ought to be pursued all the way to the end. Now, when we think about the doctrine of assurance, um, there are two ways in which you can be assured. There are two kind of pegs, so to speak, that help to, to, uh, to produce assurance in your life. We've actually already talked about one of them. They can be broken up into what's uh, subjective and objective. Now, now, that language sounds a little bit technical. The idea is that... Um, a subjective, the subjective part of assurance is, is simply to say there are things that you can look at in your own life that show that you really are, that you really are a Christian, that you really have salvation. The objective element of, of assurance are the things that you look to outside of yourself. So there are things that you need to look for inwardly, and there are things that you need to look for outside of yourself. With regard to the things inwardly, you need to look for, do I really have love for God expressed in the service of the saints? Or am I really bearing uh, this kind of fruit? If you were to ask, what is the objective thing? What are the, what's the thing that, that gives you an objective kind of assurance? The answer is the promises of God. So when you think about how you are to pursue assurance, the idea is that you need to be cultivating in your heart a love for God that manifests itself 
in real love for God's people. But then also, you need to be always constantly thinking about, meditating on, sinking your teeth into the promises of God, finding all of your joy and peace in them. It's, it's not enough if you, just, if you can convince yourself and find out according to the scriptures that you really do believe in God. But the next question is, well, what does that give you? Why is it significant that you do believe in God? The answer is, is because as the scriptures teach, for all those who believe in God, now think on these, all these great and wonderful blessings, brothers and sisters, all those who believe in God are co-heirs with Christ, set to inherit the entire universe. You will have the resurrection of your body given to you on the last day. You will be free from all of your sins. You have power to defeat the sins in your life now. You will be given eternal life on the last day. You will be able to see God with your eyes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are all just some of the things that are promised to you in the scriptures. And these are the things that are meant to uh, stir up your heart, your affections to God, that you would look upon these things and be assured in light of them that the God who never lies will in fact grant these things to you on the last day. This is the reason why in verse 12, the author speaks of uh, imitating those who through faith and patience, inherit, uh, and patience inherit the promises. There is a link between assurance and the promises of God. In some sense, this is even the more important one than the subjective element. If you are always thinking, uh, looking at yourself and wondering, you know, is this enough fruit? You know, am, I, um, you know, am I doing enough in order to have real assurance? Um, there is a sense in which self-examination is good, it's healthy, it needs to be done, but it can go too far. And the main thing that you need to do, even beyond simple self-examination, is to be looking objectively to the promises of God that are outside of yourself, resting on those, and then simply saying, I really do love God for these things, and I simply want to act in accordance with all of these things. Brothers and sisters, these are the things that you are to do. This is the, the, the objective and the subjective nature, parts of assurance, and you are to pursue these things diligently. You are to remember that God is the one who rewards those who seek him, and therefore you yourself are to seek him. Now, the reason you are to do this is given in verse 12. So there is the duty of it. We desire that you be diligent to pursue full assurance, the assurance of hope to the end. And the reason he says this, why are you to do this? Why are you to pursue full assurance is given in verse 12, said negatively and positively. So one, that you not be sluggish, that you not be sluggish, but then two, that you imitate those who through faith and patience, in, uh, and patience inherit the promises. So something not to do, something to do. Notice, something not to do. Um, if you do not pursue full assurance, it will cause you to be sluggish. Not to say that it's going to cause you to be not a Christian. That's not what the author is saying. Uh, it, remember, it is possible to be a real Christian and have no assurance. That will lead to spiritual sluggishness. And that is something of the state that the author is finding the Hebrews in. He believes they are converted. He believes they are saved, but he also believes they are sluggish. And so because of that, they need to be warned, they need to be, and they need to be looking to the promises of God in faith. That's the reason why uh, the book is being written. You need to be assured of these things so that you can then walk in a manner that's godly, not being sluggish. The word for sluggish here is the same word that he used in, in chapter 5, verse 11, when he described the immaturity of the people that he's writing to. Remember chapter 5, verse 11? So of whom, that is Christ, we have much to say. 
um, and hard to, it's hard to explain, since you have become, and the word as it's translated here is dull of hearing. It's the same word that's being used. So the idea is you're sluggish in hearing. And therefore, there is, this, you know, there is this, a spiritual stupor that you have. And what the author is saying here is he's using, going, again, using the same word, and he's saying, if you do not, if you do not pursue full assurance, it will cause you to be sluggish. You are sluggish because you are not pursuing full assurance of hope according to the, what, what the Bible teaches. So you are not to do that. Rather, you are to be imitators of all those who've come before you who really did endure, who were faithful all the way to the end, and who showed a good example of faith. So you are not to be sluggish, you are rather to be spiritually vital, so to speak, in, in, in uh, being imitators of those who have come before you. Now, verse 12 sets up a comparison that we'll look at more next week, the comparisons with Abraham. Abraham, always in the scriptures, is, is the, the prototypical man of faith. He's always the, uh, the, the great example of faith uh, that's given in the scriptures. And so the idea here is that you are to be, as you think about all those in the scriptures who came before, you think of Abraham, how was it that he was able to persevere in the faith such that he was willing even to offer up his son Isaac? The answer is he believed in the promises of God. He lived a life where he truly loved God and it was expressed in the love that he had for others. He was assured of his, of his salvation and he moved forward and was able to inherit the promises on the last day. How was he able to do it? How was he able to overcome all the difficulties that he, that he faced? Because he considered him faithful who promised. He considered him faithful who promised, as the author to the Hebrews says in a number of points. All of those who come before us, they put their trust in God, they marvel at the wonders of his grace, and thus they are given the strength to endure even to the end. Brothers and sisters, are you pursuing the full assurance of hope? Are you being diligent in the pursuit of these things? Can your love for other Christians be seen by others? Do you have a very real assurance that is based on the teachings of the Scripture? This is important. This last point is important because there are many, there are many who will deceive themselves by giving to themselves a false sense of security a false sense of assurance. It's not based on the scriptures. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew chapter 7. There are many who will come to me on the last day and who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? And Christ will say, be gone, I never knew you. It's not those who say to me, Lord, Lord, who will inherit the kingdom of God, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is that will of the Father? It is loving other Christians. It is loving other Christians. Those are, are they who can be assured that they are, in fact, uh, doing the will of the Father who is in heaven. Um, but secondly, even beyond that, beyond just the, looking at the fruit in your life, do you have a clear conception of the promises of God? Do you strive to rest in them, and are they your greatest comfort? As you face anything in this life, is the first thing you go to the promises of God? I know that my God will take care of me, because He has said so in the Word. The heart that so acts is the heart that can be assured of his salvation. Now, brothers and sisters, I can say, it's really a wonderful thing to be able to say, that I've, even as the author was able to say of the congregation that he was writing to, you know, I believe of better things for you, things pertaining to salvation. I have been encouraged by, by this congregation. I've been encouraged by the way in which the word of God has been uh, received. 
by the, which, by the way in which many of you have shown true love for God in the service of the saints, and yet still I exhort you, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Be diligent to do it. Do not put it off another moment. Whatever it takes, make sure that you are being diligent to rest in the promises of God that you might always have the full assurance of hope. And may it be that God would grant you such an assurance that you might live a godly life before him, giving praise to him for all that he has done in your life, bearing fruit in every good work, sharing in the blessings of God, and being imitators of all those who by faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a wonderful thing it is to know that it is possible for a Christian to have assurance. Lord, and when we have assurance, according to what your scriptures teach, Lord, what peace is given to our souls as we consider that your word tells us to believe in you. It then tells us what we will receive if we believe in you. It then tells us what this real faith looks like and how to know that we have it so that in every conceivable way, we can truly know that we belong to you. Uh, Lord, what a wonderful thing, how thankful we are that you have so, uh, in your wisdom, that you have so revealed these things to us, that we might be assured of all the things that are coming our way. May it be, Lord, that you would grant us always to have this assurance, and that in so doing, uh, Lord, we would be uh, strengthened to be able to live godly lives before you. For Lord, you do ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart that through the preached word, your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.